Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome to week 39 in our series, Long Story Short. If you've been with us, you know we've been taking a year to read through the whole Bible, and this is the last week in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. We did it. So in honor of the journey we've been on the past 38 weeks, Today, we're going to do an Old Testament wrap-up summary. Now, for those who are meeting in person today, it's a family Sunday, which means all of our kids are in the auditorium with us, and it's going to be a little bit more interactive in in person than we can accomplish online. We're going to be going over the same subject using some artwork from the Bible Project. But since you're at home, I don't want to ramble on and on too much about the Old Testament. And so you get to watch a couple videos directly from the Bible Project. One will be an overview of the Old Testament, and one will be about the covenants found in the Old Testament. And then after the videos, I'll come back and provide some personal commentary. So let's watch these two videos together. If you open a Protestant Christian Bible and look at the table of contents, you'll notice the first three quarters is a collection called the Old Testament. If you look at the list of books, you'll see it's made up of 39 smaller works that are grouped into four main sections. The first five are called the Pentateuch, followed by the historical books, then the poetic books, and finally the books of the prophets. Now that seems simple enough, but actually it's more complicated and way more interesting. This arrangement of the books in a single volume called the Old Testament is a later Christian tradition that developed after Jesus and the apostles. In ancient Jewish tradition, these works were all on separate scrolls and were conceived of as a unified three-part collection called Tanakh. It's a Hebrew acronym for Torah, which means instruction, Nevi'im, which means prophets, and Ketuvim, which means writings. The Tanakh has the same books as the Protestant Old Testament, but they're arranged differently. The Torah corresponds to the Pentateuch, but the prophets consist of four historical narrative books and then the 15 works named after specific prophets. After this comes the writings, a diverse collection of poetic and narrative texts. Now this three-part design is really, really old. It's referred to in ancient Jewish texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Wisdom of Ben Sira, even Jesus of Nazareth mentioned it. And that's because this three-part shape is woven into the compositional design of the scrolls themselves. If you pay attention, you'll discover that every scroll has been coordinated by means of cross-references that link each work into the larger three-part collection. So, who put all these scrolls together? It was a long process. Some of the famous contributors are named, like Moses or David, But most of the authors remain anonymous. In the Bible, they're simply called scribes or the prophets. These scrolls took shape throughout Israel's history as generations of prophetic scribes collected earlier stories and poems, integrated them into larger compositions, and then eventually shaped all this material into the unified library of scrolls, the Tanakh. It's clear from texts in the Psalms and prophets that these prophetic scribes believed that God's Spirit was guiding this whole process so that through these human words, 
God speaks to his people. That's why they treasured these texts, studying and composing them into a unified collection. We don't know when precisely this process was finished, but it was somewhere in the last centuries before the time of Jesus. In its final shape, the Tanakh offers a prophetic interpretation of Israel's history that claims to reveal God's purposes to rescue the whole world. And while we can't do justice to the whole collection in one video, it's helpful to get an overview of what these scrolls are all about. The Torah begins with God creating and blessing a great piece of real estate, our very good world. And God entrusts it to a creature that reflects the divine image. Human, or in Hebrew, Adam. God appoints humanity to rule the world as kings and queens of creation. And the question is whether they will trust God's wisdom to discern good and evil, or seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves. But there's another creature with the humans, a mysterious snake. It's in rebellion against the creator, and it dupes the humans to foolishly rebel against God's generosity. As a result, humanity is separated from its divine source of life and exiled from a garden of blessing to die in a dangerous wilderness. From there, humanity keeps spreading and redefining good and evil, and things go downhill fast. They build cities plagued by violence and oppression, all leading to the foundation of a city called Babylon, where people exalt themselves to the place of God. And now the basic plot conflict of the whole Bible is set. God wants to bless his world and rule it through humans. But now, humans are the problem. They're under the influence of evil, they're stupid and short-sighted, and headed for self-destruction. And this is all a setup for God's solution. We need a new kind of human. And so God promises that a new human will come, who won't give in to the snake. In fact, he'll crush it and be crushed by it. From here, the story traces the promised lineage to a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah. God entrusts them with the same divine blessing given to humanity on page one. And so they leave Babylon to a new garden-like land that God promises to give his family. What follows is the story of Abraham's family. Three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, followed by 12 sons. And our hopes are high until we read their very dysfunctional and destructive family story. They lie, cheat, nearly kill each other, not to mention the sex scandals. But what did you expect after the garden story? They're humans. Eventually, Abraham's family ends up exiled down in Egypt. All these failures of Abraham's family form a dark background for the handful of bright moments in the story. God stays committed to these people. He even makes them an eternal promise called a covenant that he will rescue and bless all humanity through them. How exactly? Isn't clear. But Abraham's family is at its best when they stop their selfish scheming and trust God's promise with radical faith. From here, the family grows. They end up enslaved in Egypt, and we're introduced to the Torah's other main character, Moses. God raises him up to rescue the Israelites and bring them to a mountain where they're all invited into a covenant relationship with God. They're given 613 terms of the relationship, guidelines for becoming new kinds of humans who will faithfully represent God to the world. And Moses brokers this whole deal because... He's awesome. He's the ultimate prophet who speaks God's word to Israel. He's a priest who represents them before God. And he's even called a king, Israel's leader and deliverer in time of need. But as the Torah progresses, the Israelites fail big time. They violate the covenant and even Moses rebels against God. In fact, the Torah ends with Moses predicting that Israel's failure will continue as they go back into the promised land and they're going to end up in exile once again. But he has hope. 
that God will fulfill his promise to rescue Israel. One day he will cover for their failures. He'll heal their selfish hearts so they can truly love God and live. And then Moses dies. Now, the final sentences of the Torah scroll are surprising. They zoom forward in time. And we hear from the prophetic scribes who shaped the Tanakh. They reflect back on the story of Moses from their vantage point, And they tell us that never again in Israel's history did a prophet like Moses arise. Man, I wish another prophet, priest, king like him would come along. And with that, we move into the Nevi'im. It has two sub-collections. First, the former prophets, four narrative works about Israel's story in the Promised Land, told from the later perspective of the prophets. Things start great with Joshua's leadership. We're told he's successful because he's just like Moses. And he meditates on scripture day and night. But eventually, even Joshua fails, beginning Israel's long and violent descent into self-destruction, just like Moses and the garden story anticipated. These stories mostly focus on the failure of Israel's kings, prophets, and priests, how they lie, cheat, and kill each other, and worship idols. It's basically a longer, bloodier replay of the ancestors' failures. But there are some bright spots. God reaffirms his covenant promise to bless humanity through a new human. It will be a king from the line of David. And you get some stories about people like David or Solomon who have moments like Abraham when they trust God, but it never lasts. And wouldn't you know it, the family of Abraham ends up right where they began, conquered and exiled in Babylon. But remember, this whole story is being told from the later perspective of the prophets, and they know exile isn't the end. So they designed these stories of Israel's past as pointers to their future hope. When God does rescue his people out of Babylon, he'll send that new king who will be like Moses and David and Solomon were on their good days. In fact, this is what the second part of the Nevi'im, the latter prophets, is all about. There are three large and twelve short works connected to specific prophets. And this design intentionally recalls the three plus twelve ancestors from Genesis, whose stories of failure contained the seeds of future hope. These prophetic scrolls are loaded with cross-references that link back into the narrative of the Torah and the prophets, and they carry the story further. The job of Israel's prophets was to be like Moses, to accuse the old Israel of failure and corruption, and to warn them about the looming result, the great day of the Lord, which ended with defeat and exile in Babylon. But the prophets also promised that God had a purpose, to purify his people and recreate a new Israel who would be faithful like Abraham was. They'll live in a new covenant relationship with God under the reign of that promised ruler, who's described as a new Moses, but called by the name David. He will be the one to restore God's blessing to the entire world. The conclusion of the Nevi'im is just like the Torah. There's a note from the Tanakh's prophetic scribes. They reflect back over the whole story so far, and they urge readers to anticipate the arrival of a new Moses-like prophet who they call Elijah. He will announce the arrival of Israel's God to purify and save his people. From here, we move into the Tanakh's third and final sub-collection, the Ketuvim, a diverse collection of scrolls. Each one has been designed to link back into the key themes from the Torah and the prophets and develop them further through an elaborate tapestry of cross-references. For example, the Psalms scroll is introduced by two poems that are coordinated to the beginning of the Torah and the prophets. In the first psalm, we meet the righteous one, who's described as a new Joshua, a successful leader who meditates on the scriptures. 
He's like the king promised by Moses, and he's like the eternal tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Psalm 2 then identifies this figure. It's the promised king, the son of God from the line of David, who's going to defeat evil among the nations and restore God's blessing to the world. And the rest of the psalm scroll teaches God's people how to pray as they wait for this future hope. Then there are the wisdom scrolls that address some of the most difficult questions raised by the story of the Torah and the prophets. So Proverbs sounds like Moses in the Torah. Trust in God, be faithful and obedient, and you'll have peace and success. But then Ecclesiastes and Job reflect back on Israel's complicated history and say, yeah, we tried that, and it's not that simple. These three books carry on a profound conversation about what it means to live wisely in God's good and often confusing world. Two of the last books of the Tanakh to be written make a crucial contribution. The Daniel scroll looks back over the long history of Israel's failure and suffering as a strange door of hope into a new future for the world. One day, that new human promised in the Torah and prophets will arrive. He's going to be trampled by humanity's animal-like inclinations towards evil, but then God will vindicate him and raise him up to rule the world in divine power. And finally, the scroll of Chronicles retells the entire story of the Tanakh from the beginning up to Israel's return from exile. The author focuses on God's promise to David of a future king who will reunite God's people in a new Jerusalem and bring divine blessing to the nations. The final lines of the Chronicles scroll have been coordinated with key texts from all over the Tanakh. They keep alive the hope of an ultimate return from exile pointing to the arrival of an Israelite whose God is with him, that he may go up and restore the new Jerusalem. And that's how the story ends. The Tanakh is a majestically and intentionally designed collection of ancient Hebrew scrolls. These diverse texts from all periods of Israel's history have been woven together as a unified story about God's covenant promise to Israel and to all humanity. They were made for a lifetime's worth of reading and reflection, as these remarkable human words offer a divine word of wisdom and future hope that still speaks today. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. 
And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel and obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham. And so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning.
Those are some cool videos. If you haven't checked out the Bible Project and all that they have to offer, please go to BibleProject.com today and check them out. Now today, we don't talk a lot about covenants, but we should. Covenants are one of the most important themes in the Bible because they act as skeletons upon which the entire redemptive story is built. They're like the backbone of the Bible. From Genesis 1 on, God enters into formal relationships one after another with various humans in order to rescue his world. And it's, it's these divine human relationships that push that narrative forward until it reaches its climax in Jesus. Therefore, to tell the story of God redeeming his people through Jesus is to tell the story of God's covenantal relationship with his people, which is pretty important, right? That's why I wanted to show you that video and then quickly explore the key biblical covenants. But before we do, let's back up and consider what a covenant is and how the covenantal story all began. A covenant is a chosen relationship or a partnership in which two parties make a binding promise to each other to work towards a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths and signs and ceremonies. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments, but they differ from a contract in that they are relational and personal. Think of a marriage. In love, a husband and wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in lifelong faithfulness and devotion. They then work as partners to reach a common goal, like building a career or raising children together. That's a covenant. This type of relationship is very common in the Bible. There were personal covenants between two individuals, like David and Jonathan in uh, 1 Samuel 23. Political covenants between two kings or nations, uh, like King Solomon and King Hiram from 1 Kings 5. Or legal covenants with a nation, like laws about freeing Hebrew slaves. Covenanting was part of what it meant to live in the ancient Near East. So in that context, it makes sense that a merciful God would reach out to humans to reveal himself and bring about reconciliation through a structure they already understood. But we have to start at the beginning. Like every good story, the covenantal story began long ago in a land far, far away, the Garden of Eden. It's there that God created humans in His image to be in relationship with Him and to act as partners to help Him spread goodness throughout the world. The word covenant, or in Hebrew, berith, isn't explicitly used in Genesis 1-3, through but the details of the relationship are similar. Adam and Eve were to live as priest kings on God's behalf replicating and ruling over the world, and representing His righteousness to all. They would enjoy the blessings of eternal life with God as long as they didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, to do so, however, would bring curse on death of, of death on humanity. Like, it should be easy, right? Wrong. Unfortunately, humans don't live up to our end of the deal. Imagine that. Adam and Eve chose to disbelieve God and to trust their own instincts about right and wrong. They sinned against God fracturing the human and divine relationship and plunged humanity into sin and death. Now, this fall accounts for the brokenness and corruption we experience in the world today. And we'd be stuck in the wreckage of Genesis 3 were it not for divine intervention through the covenants. Thankfully, the rest of the Bible describes how God sets out to repair this broken partnership with humans. Enter the covenants. Now, there's no consensus on the number of divine covenants, but as we saw in the video, there are five explicit covenants that form the backbone of the Bible. Those God makes with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus. Now, you'll want to know these as we keep the narrative moving along until we get the climax of the story, Jesus. First, the covenant with Noah. 
God enters a formal relationship with Noah and all living creatures, promising that despite humanity's evil, he will never again destroy them. Rather, he will preserve the world as he works towards fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15, rescuing humanity and creation through the offspring of the woman. He reiterates the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, inviting humans to partner with him in filling and ruling his world. The situation is this. After Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden, the narrative gets grim. In Genesis 4, Cain sides with the serpent, killing his brother in cold blood. A man named Lamech brags about his murderous, chauvinistic ways. And in Genesis 5, it repeats the refrain, and he died eight times, revealing how, how death has ruled over humanity. Then there's this weird story in Genesis 6 that's meant to show the rapid advancement of evil. Sin has enveloped the whole world. So God sends a destroying flood upon the earth to purge it of wickedness, making way for a restored creation that will begin with Noah and his family. But in this covenant, there are Noah and no stipulations. None. It's an unconditional covenant grounded in the promise of God to never again destroy the world until redemption is fully accomplished. And God gives the sign uh, in the form of a rainbow to show that God has withdrawn his weapons of war and his warrior's bow will remain at rest until the final day of judgment. Now, the next covenant we see God enter into is a redemptive partnership with Abraham, developed progressively in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. He promises Abraham a huge family that will inherit a promised piece of land in Canaan and bring universal blessing to all humanity through his family. You can remember these promises like this. One, offspring. Two, land. Three, universal blessing. The covenant with Noah provided the circumstances in which redemption could could come, but it wasn't redemptive in and of itself. Evil continued to reign over the world. Genesis 9 through 12 traces the downward spiral of mankind, peaking in the story of the Tower of Babel or Babylon. There, humans try to overthrow God's authority by building a new world center to exalt themselves above God. It was humanity's way of giving God the finger, revealing the nature of the human heart. God scatters the nation in judgments, and we're left to wonder, how in the world will humanity be saved? Then, in a stunning act of grace, God selects Abraham and calls him into a covenantal relationship. But Abraham faces stipulations in the covenant. Abraham is to leave his land, follow God wherever he leads, walking blamelessly before God, and training his family to do what is right and just, and keeping circumcision in every generation. This is both conditional and unconditional covenant. God and man each have a part to play, but ultimately these promises will be fulfilled because God will see to it that they come to pass. And God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, a symbol setting this family apart to God, showing that their fertility and their future lay in God's hands. Now, as the story progresses, we find the people of Israel now in Egypt under oppression. But God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt and promises to make them his own treasured possession, a holy set-apart nation. He will personally dwell in their midst and bring them into the promised land. He, Yahweh, will be their God and they, Israel, will be his people. Moreover, we learn in Exodus 19 through 24 that they will be a kingdom of priests that mediate his goodness and glory to all nations. Talk about an epic role in the redemptive history. Exodus opens with Abraham's offspring multiplying rapidly in Egypt. It's like a really big family now, which threatens the new Pharaoh's ego. He forces God's people to become slave laborers in his building campaigns, and they cry out to God and 
God hears them, sending Moses to be his instrument of divine power and to lead them out of Egypt towards the promised land. Now, when they reach the foot of Mount Sinai, God shows up in a big way, like huge, to revisit his promises made to Abraham and to enter a formal relationship with Israel. But this was not this was a conditional covenant of grace. Israel was to obey the terms embodied in all the laws given at Mount Sinai, which we summarize in the Ten Commandments. God promised to bring blessings if they followed his commands, but curses if they disobeyed, most notably exile into foreign lands. Part of this relationship is the sign of the Sabbath, A sign God sanctified and set apart Israel to be holy unto him. Now, eventually God establishes David as king over Israel and promises to make his name great. He's going to give David a royal kingdom in which the promises made to Abraham and Israel will be fulfilled through his lineage. God will raise up a Davidic descendant who will build a house for the Lord and his throne and his kingdom will last forever. God's steadfast love will never depart from him. Remember when God's people entered Canaan? and eventually demanded a king so that they could be like all the other nations. Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, is anointed, but he fails to obey God, so he's rejected as king. God then chooses David, the son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah. Now, this should pique your interest. Like, wasn't there supposed to be a messianic ruler from the line of Judah? David becomes a successful leader, overcoming Israel's enemies and restoring the presence of God to the city of David. When there's a national arrest, he decides to build a house for God, but God has other plans. He will build an everlasting kingdom and throne for David, not the other way around. But David and his descendants must remain faithful to God, walk in covenantal faithfulness, and lead Israel in obedience to the covenantal laws. However, there are conditional and unconditional elements to the covenant. Despite the king's failures, God guaranteed a faithful Davidic king on the throne. And we're left to ask, I wonder who that could be. Finally, we get to the new covenant, and it is the culmination of God's saving work in his people. He promises to make an everlasting covenant with his people in which he will write his law on their hearts, bring complete forgiveness of sin, put his spirit in them to empower them to love and obey his commands, and raise up a faithful Davidic king to rule over them, bring back into the land to reunify them into one people of God and cause them to be a light to the nations. The new covenant is explicitly introduced by the prophets in the context of of total failure. The kings, the people, even the religious leaders failed to keep God's commands. It turns out that God's covenantal people were nothing but covenant breakers. The curses of the covenant came upon them as they were exiled to Babylon. But there, the prophets give us hope. God would one day bring about a new covenant. The anticipation of this covenant pushes the story forward into the pages of the New Testament where we are introduced to Jesus, the one who will fulfill all the prophetic promises and bring about blessing for all people. There are no stipulations to this unconditional covenant of grace. God both gives the promises and brings them about through the work of his faithful son, Jesus. Then at the Last Supper in Matthew 26, Jesus connects his death to the new exodus, the new covenant themes highlighted in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And while Pentecost activates new covenant themes from Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, so the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit can be seen as signs of the new covenant. So, do you see how the covenants progressively build upon one another, forming the backbone of sorts to this redemptive storyline? God preserved the world through Noah, 
initiated redemption through Abraham, formed a special people through Israel, promised a shepherd king through David, and then fulfilled all of his covenantal promises through Jesus. With each covenant, God's promises and plans to save the world through the seed of the woman become clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through King Jesus. Jesus is the covenantal fulfillment. This wouldn't be any fun if we didn't see how the covenants pointed towards and were fulfilled in Jesus. That's the best part. The New Testament presents Jesus as the offspring of Abraham, who trusted his father even to the point of death, and so became a blessing to all nations. He is the obedient Israelite who perfectly kept, fulfilled, and thus transcended the law of God. He is the royal son of David, who inaugurated God's kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection, and now sits at God's right hand, reigning over as shepherd king over all the earth, and will continue to reign forever over the new creation. Think about it. Jesus perfectly succeeded at every point humans failed. This makes him the guarantor and mediator of the new and better covenant. Now people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are joined to Jesus in faith are part of God's covenant family and experience the rich blessings of the new covenant. In this new covenant, we get total forgiveness of sins and cleansing from shame. We get new hearts of flesh and the indwelling spirit, causing us to love God's laws and to walk in His ways. We can actually do justice and righteousness, and so be a light to all nations. So in light of the biblical storyline, that's amazing. We can walk in freedom and light rather than sin and darkness. We have bold access to God and stand in the realm of grace. We trust that a renewed world is coming where peace and righteousness will reign forever under the King Jesus. And it's all possible because of Him, the perfect covenant keeper. And it's this new covenant that we celebrate each week when we go to the table. We break the bread, we take the cup, we remember the door open to us through the cross, and we celebrate Jesus as Lord and King. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.